Amen. Do you believe that this morning? I know you do. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 6. And I want to tell you before we just jump into the message this morning that uh, the Lord has uh, privileged me to be able to preach from Nehemiah chapter 6. This will be number 4. And I promise you this is not a rerun. This is uh, just for this morning. Uh, But I preached on this once as a youth pastor and then twice as a senior pastor before today. And this is my favorite chapter in the book. And this is one of those chapters that I both hate and love uh, because it will encourage you, it will challenge you, it may kick you in the seat of the pants. But as I prepared this message this week and just thought back over my life history with Nehemiah 6, I believe I can honestly say to you that every time I've studied this chapter, the Lord has used it to change my life. And my prayer is this morning that this will be a drive a stake in the ground, pivot point, change point for your life. This is an incredible chapter of scripture. And so let me start just with a brief word of prayer. Father, thank you for the truths that you show us in this chapter, the truths we find throughout uh, your word. But especially today, take these truths and may your Holy Spirit apply them to our hearts and lives such that we will be changed and you will be honored in an even greater way in the way that we live and the things that we're committed to. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered what you are worth? Uh, What are you worth? What are you really worth? Well, the value of something is determined by how much somebody is willing to pay for it, right? And so you, uh, you, you may have something that you think is valuable until you put it on eBay and nobody bids on it, and then you find out that that value is just in your head. Well, let me show you a penny, a photograph of a penny that I found this week. I didn't find the penny, I just found the photograph. This is a 1943 penny. It represents itself as being worth one cent. It was uh, minted in Denver, 1943, when they were minting some coins in steel and some coins in copper due to the war. But something went wrong with this coin and a dozen or so other coins. They, They stamped it in the wrong metal. And so on the inside, this penny is all wrong but it is worth something. An executive for Southwestern Airlines purchased it a few years ago for $1,700,000. So it represents itself as worth one cent, but what is its real value? $1.7 million. Now what about me? What about you? Well, the Lord looked at us And he saw that we were corrupt. He saw that on the inside, we have the wrong stuff. But God loved us so much that he purchased us. He paid for us with the blood of his son. Our value is measureless. We are worth so much. And the proof of that is that God has purchased us with the blood of his son. So since we're so valuable, our lives ought to shine, right? Since we're so valuable, we ought to see some significance in everything that we do. What if it turned out that your life was way more important 
than you ever imagined that it was? What if it turned out that God wanted to do more through you and your life than anybody could have ever imagined? You are worth a mint because of what God paid for you. But our value can be squandered if we're not careful. Just like a gift card uh, may be very valuable if you take it to the retailer or you take it to the restaurant and you redeem it, but if you don't, if you just hold on to it, it is just a worthless piece of plastic. So our lives are valuable if we redeem our lives for what God would have us to do. But if we squander our lives, then we lose much of that value. So I want you to see in Nehemiah chapter six, how Nehemiah redeemed his life and he made it count for something. And we're going to ask the question, how can our lives count for something as well? Now we've been studying Nehemiah and if you haven't been here the last few weeks, I'll catch you up. God had put a call on Nehemiah's life. God had burdened him to go to Jerusalem and restore this ancient city to rebuild the walls, to bring safety to the city, ultimately to bring revival to the city. And Nehemiah goes uh, to do that. We were in Nehemiah chapter four last week. They were about halfway through the project. And we saw that Nehemiah avoided the temptation of quitting halfway through. That's the, that's the place where we often just throw our hands up and quit. But Nehemiah pressed on. We studied that last week. Now we come to Nehemiah chapter six. The project is about 75% done. But now there are some new distractions. There are some new obstacles and temptations. And I want us to see what they are and see what Nehemiah does and how his life is counted as significant because of what he does in Nehemiah chapter six. So let's read together. It says, when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at that time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. There uh, they were planning to harm me. So he gets this message. He's, he's maybe 75% done with the project and he gets this message from his enemies that we've been reading about all the way back to Nehemiah chapter two. And the message is this, come to the valley of Ono, we need to have a meeting. Now Ono was about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was toward the Mediterranean Sea. It was uh, near the city of Joppa. And it would have taken a couple of days just to get there. He would have had to have gotten all of his stuff together. It was a long journey, 30 miles on foot. And then he would have to meet and then a couple of days back. So this was gonna be a really big deal. And they invited him to stop the work and come to Ono for a meeting. So what does he do? Verse three, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing an important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? So they said, come to the Valley of Ono. What did he say? Oh no, I'm not coming down. And so they asked him to come and he refused. Verse four, four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. So Sanballat, verse five, this is one of these three enemies. Sanballat sent me this same message a fifth time 
by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. And so he pretended that it was confidential. It was not confidential. He's trying to uh, garner some support against Nehemiah. And in it, verse 6 says, the letter reads, it is reported among the nations and Geshem agrees, like that makes it true. You know, here's a rumor and -and so-and-so agrees with it, so it must be true. Geshem agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and have even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf, there is a king in Judah. And these rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. And so this is the fifth time that he's invited for this meeting, the Valley of Ono. Verse 8, I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. So if somebody wants to say something that's untrue, uh, they don't usually need a reason, and that was the case here Verse nine, for they were all trying to intimidate us saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now my God, strengthen my hands. This is one of the many examples of Nehemiah's prayer life. Every time something would go wrong and sometimes it was just five or six words like you see here, Nehemiah always prayed. Now, there's the story. Nehemiah's life counted for something. He was a cupbearer to the king, and now he becomes really the model, a demonstration of what Jesus does for us, right? So so Nehemiah comes from a faraway place. He swoops into this city that's in just desolate shape. It is a hopeless city, and he brings hope and restoration, just like Jesus has, has swooped in from heaven and has done something to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us. And so in that way, Nehemiah's life is significant. Nehemiah's life is significant also because he prepares the way for Christ's coming. We said that this was about four and 450 years before Christ was born. Uh, Christ when he lived in and around Jerusalem, he did many things in his ministry that had been prophesied of in the Old Testament, but many of those things could not have happened had Nehemiah not first rebuilt the walls around the city. So Nehemiah's life was significant in that way. Nehemiah's life was significant because he restored the city, he restored a nation and a people, he ushered in a revival. Nehemiah's life counted for something. So the question, Is my life significant? Is your life significant? Or are our lives just consumed by the trivial? How can I live a life that counts for something? Well, Nehemiah's secret are found in two verses that we read a moment ago, right here in chapter six, verses three and four. And if you're going to mark any verses in your Bible, I would suggest you mark Nehemiah 6, 3 and 4. These are so important. This is his secret to living a life of significance. There are four things he does there. We probably won't have time to get to all four of them. But I want us to look at that. And I know audience participation is not your favorite thing. 
But I want us to read these verses aloud together. Can we do that? I just want them to sink into your mind, into your heart. These are such important verses. I'll show you why in the rest of the sermon. But let's read them together. You ready? They're on the screen. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Let me show you four things in those two verses that Nehemiah did to make his life significant. And if we'll do these things, then our lives will be significant as well. Number one, we must identify the most important activities or commitments in our lives. If you look back at verse three, he says right in the middle of the verse, I am doing an important work. Your Bible might say, I am doing a great work. Nehemiah was doing something that God had called him to do. He was committed to something that mattered. At the very beginning of the book, Nehemiah identifies, here's what's important to me. He was clear about it. He wrote it down. It's recorded in the book. In fact, if you want to turn back, I think it's chapter 2, verse 17. He said, so I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Nehemiah had laser focus on one thing that he needed to do. He had identified what was most important. If our lives are going to be lives of significance, we need to be able to say, this is what my life is about. These are the important things in my life. These are the things that are significant. These are the things that count. Now, let me show you how that works as you look at your life in different ways. First of all, as you look at your life, at your whole life, when people, when you die and people look back on your life, what do you want them to say about you? When people talk about your uh, marriage, when, when your spouse and when your children talk about the life that you lived in front of them, what do you want them to say was the significance of your life? We need to ask that question. Nehemiah knew the answer. He had communicated the answer. How is your life going to count for the kingdom of God? How is God going to use your life to further the kingdom of God? We need to look at our life from a broad perspective. What is the most important thing? But not just from a whole life perspective. We need to look at it according to the season that we live in. You know, some of you are high school students, that's your season. Some of you are college students, that's who you are right now. Some of you, maybe you're, you're young married, maybe you have children, maybe you have high school age children, that's a whole different season of life. Maybe you're empty nesters or you're retired folks. And so we're all in a different season of life and God wants that season, the season that you're in today, to count for something. He wants you to have some significance in that season. What is it at this point in your life that God wants to do? We have to clearly identify that or that season of our life will just get absorbed by the hectic schedules of life and the trivial distractions that are around us. I'm afraid that many people lose whole seasons of their lives 
because they don't ask this question, what's most important to me? In fact, you ought to go to somebody this week who is a season or two ahead of you in life, and you ought to ask them if they have some advice for you. So I'm 51 years old, I have two kids in college, one kid in middle school, uh, but I think back a season. I remember when I had kids in grade school. And so maybe this morning you're 35 years old and you have a kindergartner and you have a third grader. I'm telling you, if you call me this next week, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> and so would everybody else in my season of life. And I need to be calling somebody in the next season of life because that fellow's got something to say to me. It is so easy for us to just squander a whole season of life because things are hectic and because distractions are trivial. But we also need to ask the question, what's important for me today? Now we're gonna talk more about today in just a moment, but we should be reminded that our season of life is composed of all of the todays. Our whole life is composed of just a bunch of days. It really comes down to what's important for you today. I'll tell you something I began to do about a year ago, and I meant to bring my, uh, my journal uh, up here with me so I could well, just sort of hold it up and show it to you. But I, just, I about a year ago, began to write down in a journal, I don't type it in, it's not electronic, it's not an app, I write it down, every week, here's how my life is gonna be significant this week. And I write it down. I, I limit myself to three things, I'm not gonna make a whole long list, but the three ways, both in my ministry and in my personal life and my family life, three ways I want my life to be significant this week. And then I do it every single day. I get up and I, and I do it early in the morning. I take a picture of it and I send it to a few people here in our church and some others uh, that are committed to pray for me. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's private because, you know, our lives are private. But I write down every day, here's how I want my life to count today. I send the ministry stuff to some people here on staff and, and other parts go to other people. But I write it down. I don't always do it. But I try to think every day, like Nehemiah thought, what is the important things that God wants me to invest in today? So the first thing Nehemiah did to be significant was he identified what's most important to me in my activities and my commitment. If we don't do that, then our life will just be squandered. Now, the second thing he did is he chose the best over the good. Now this is a little harder to explain, but this is so important. If you look back at verse three that we read a moment ago, he says, I'm doing an important work and I cannot come down. He refused to meet with his enemies. Now why, why in the world would he do that? Is it a good idea to meet with people when we have differences with them? Absolutely, it's a good thing. And in most cases, that's exactly what we should do. In fact, in the New Testament, it tells us that if we refuse to do that with a Christian, that we're guilty of sin. And so it is absolutely a good thing to meet with people. I thought about this this week. Uh, there are really only two times, there have only been two times uh, since I've been your pastor that I've refused to meet with somebody and I want to tell you about it. Uh, number one, 
the people in town who are thoroughly convinced that they're space aliens visiting Nacogdoches and the government is covering it up and they want me to meet with them and discuss this with them. In fact, they would like to come and share that news with you. I have not met with them. And so if you are continuing to watch our television program today, <laughs> I want you to know that I'm still busy and I'm unavailable to meet. And so the other, the other people I've refused to meet with uh, are the ministers in town uh, who want me to help them uh, to continue to promote these services where they bless the pets and the turtles. And I don't know why those are two different categories. I haven't gone to the meeting to see, but I have been too busy for the same reasons that, uh, that Nehemiah was too busy. I've been too busy to meet with those people. So other than that, you know, I, I feel like I've met with everybody who has wanted to meet. And, and that's a good thing. That's ordinarily what we should do. So why did Nehemiah refuse to meet with these critics? Well, let's look at what was at stake. If Nehemiah was gonna meet with them in Ono, 30 miles away, it was gonna take, first of all, several days. Two or three days to get there, two days to get there. Uh, the meeting time, two days to return. Uh, he was gonna be gone. The work would have stopped and the whole project would have been in jeopardy. Listen, it might have been a good thing for him to meet, but it wasn't the best thing for him to do. Do you understand the difference? He had a choice. He could either meet with those people or rebuild the wall. And it would have been a good thing to meet. It's almost always a good thing to meet. But it wasn't the best thing that he could do. God had put a calling on his life to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. That was the best thing. And so he said, I will not give up the best in order to do the good. Oftentimes we have to make decisions and our most important, our most difficult decisions are not between the good and the bad, but they're between the good and the best. See, occasionally we have to make decisions. Do I do a good thing or do I do a bad thing? Now, that might be a hard decision, but we know which way we should choose, right? Do the good thing. If it's good versus bad, do the good thing. You didn't need to come to church to hear that. But the tough decision is when we're choosing between the good and the, and the best. The good can be an enemy to the best. We can chase after the good and ignore the best, and then our lives will not have significance. He chose the best instead of choosing the good. Can I share with you how I've struggled with this in my life? I'll, I'll share a few examples, and I think I've probably shared one or two of these before, so I'll be brief. Uh, but the one that stands out most clearly in my life uh, is a decision that my wife and I had to make when my kids were young and they were involved in dance lessons. Now, I'm not against dance lessons and I'm not giving you instructions from scripture. Uh, there's nothing wrong with dance. Your kids might do dance for all their lives and become, you know, a famous ballerina. I'm all for that. Uh, but, but, but I'm just talking about a struggle that we had in our lives at a certain time with a certain situation. So my older two girls were involved in dance. And uh, one was uh, mainly ballet and one was mainly tap dancing. But uh, here's what I learned about dancing is that you, you start off with one class here and one class there and those classes have babies. And you end up with just all kinds of classes. And so a year or two into dance, it had literally taken over our lives. 
There was dance every night. There was dance on the weekends. It was sucking up all of our extra money. It was sucking up all of our time. We weren't eating dinner together as a family anymore. We just were a dormitory for dance girls and a limousine service. And so we had to sit down and have a conversation. Now, you know, different people, different seasons of life. But for us and our schedule, we had to choose between dance or family. And dance is not bad. It's a good thing. My, uh, my girls, uh, well, I thought they were good at it until I figured out the people that are telling me they're good at it are the same people I'm writing all of these checks to. <laughs> so I really don't know how good they were. So the, uh, dance was a good thing, but we decided in our case that family was the best thing. And it was a hard decision. We had invested in that dance. But for us at the time, we needed to choose the best and not have our lives uh, destroyed, not destroyed, but not have our lives hurt by the good. I'll tell you another decision that, uh, where, where I, I think I chose wrongly. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in college, God had called me into the ministry. And I was very excited about that. The Lord gave me a small church to be a youth pastor of, and I love that church and the ministry I had there. And then on, uh, in the summer and on holidays, uh, I, I spoke at youth camps, uh, just across the southeast, mostly, mostly in Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, and down in Panama City, Florida. There were a lot of youth camps, and so I would speak at youth camps. I love that. Well, I spoke at a youth camp one time, and there was a church there that had lost their youth minister, and um, after the youth camp was over, the pastor reached out and said, hey, our, our kids and our youth workers were at this uh, youth camp last week that you, you were the speaker, and we wondered if you would come and be our youth pastor. And it was a full-time job, and I was, uh, I was a very part-time youth minister at the time, and I was really excited about it. And so I, um, I did it. Now, it was a very full-time job. I was youth pastor for five or six high schools. I was also an evangelism pastor. This was part of the job for a military base that was a pretty large military base. And so it was one of these jobs that you could only do if you were single. And so really, it was two full-time jobs. And consequently, I had to drop out of school. And at the time, I thought that was the, that was the wisest thing to do. But it prolonged me being able to finish my formal education and and, and, and when I look back on it from the perspective of, of a 51-year-old man, I realized that I chose something that was good, but I gave up what was best. Does that make sense? Now, different people in different situations of life need to make a different decision. But for me, I chose the good over the best, and I've regretted it. And I've since gone back and, 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 and received my formal education and those kinds of things, but but I suffered because I allowed the good to be an enemy of the best. Can I share you one more? Because I, and I hesitate to give you three illustrations, but I want to show you that this isn't all life-changing. Uh, sometimes these seem like very small decisions, but they're still significant. Uh, a few years ago, somebody challenged me to do an inventory of my time. You ever done that? Wrote down what you did every 15 minutes and you figured out how you were spending your time. And so I did the inventory just for myself. Nobody else was gonna see it, but I wanted to know. And it turned out I was spending an inordinate amount of time 
watching political news. Now, nothing wrong with watching political news, but listen, I was a political junkie. I watched it every single night. I watched it for hours. I read all of the websites. I was ready to fight and debate and point my finger at somebody. And, and I, I, was, I was absolutely a political news junkie. Uh, nothing happened that I didn't know about it and have three opinions on it. And, and, and listen, all of that's good. And I'm still just as passionate about my beliefs as I was back then. But I, I just began to do a little bit of math. And when I realized how many hours a week and how many hours a year, and you multiply that times five years or 10 years, how I was giving a significant part of my life. I was, I was a husband. I had young children, three young children. I was leading a growing ministry. But I was giving a significant part of my life to just watching and reading political news. And the Lord so convicted my heart and I'm, you know, go home today and watch Fox News all day long. I'm not saying that that's a sin. But for me, I had allowed the good to become an enemy of the best. And I just had to make a decision. And I probably was hooked on it. It was a tough decision. I had to make a decision. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to compromise my, my, my beliefs. And I'm going to be just as passionate about those kind of political issues than I am. But I'm not going to let that soak up hours and hours and hours of my life. I'm going to choose the best over the good. Nehemiah was significant because first he identified what was most important to him and he wouldn't compromise. Secondly, because when there was a conflict between what was good and what was best, he discerned between the two and he chose what was the best. He could have met with those people. That would have been good, but it would have prevented him from doing what was best. And so he, he refused. Now, a third thing. Well, I do want to say one more thing about that. Uh, I, had a, I had a pastor friend call me, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks ago. He actually was just becoming a senior pastor. Uh, he's starting, I think last week he started uh, his church. And it's, uh, he's, he'd been a, an associate minister, all of his ministry. So, um, so he called me and he said, uh, Noel, I, um, you know, a church has called me to be their senior pastor. And I just wondered if you you know, what's the most important piece of advice you could give to me? Well, that's a high pressure question. So I, I gave him something, but I, I just had to do it on the spot. And I, I've had some time to think about it since then. And so this next week, I'm going to call him and I want to tell you what I'm going to tell. I will tell you what I'm going to tell him. Now that I've had time to think about the most important piece of advice, what a, what a difficult question. And, and here it is. And when I... When I get up in the morning and I take my journal to write down what I'm going to do today, there are all kinds of things that I can do. Same thing is true in your life. Uh, for me, there, I, I, could, I could invest more time in studying for my message. I could go to the hospital. I could counsel with people. I could disciple men. I could build new relationships in order to share the gospel. I could meet with, uh, with staff members and I could invest in them. There are some administration things I could do. I could go to the hospital. There, there's a whole list of things that I could do. And, and they're good things. There's not anything bad on the list. But, but there's only 24 hours in the day, and I don't want to work all 24 of those hours. And so I can't do all of those things. So every day I look at that list, and I have to pick which ones I'm going to do. And, and so what I'm trying to do when I'm looking at that list is pick the best things. I can't do everything on the list, but I can do some things on the list. So I make that decision every morning, what are the best things for me to invest my life in? And the significance of my ministry 
through the years will be determined by whether or not I make that decision well. Does that make sense? If I choose the best things, then the Lord will use me. If I just choose the good things and not the best things, it'll limit everything in my ministry. Now the same, that's what I'm going to tell him. You've got to make that decision well. Now the same thing is true for you. You've got a whole list of things you can invest in, ministries you could do, mission trips you could go on, places you could give your money. There's all kinds of things. You can't do them all. But the significance of your life will be determined by that decision, what is the best? What is the good? Number three, very quickly, uh, we need to stay at the task. Uh, You notice uh, he says here at the end of verse three, why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Now, Nehemiah could have made the argument that it's just a few days. What if the wall takes one week longer than it would have taken? What's the big deal? I'll take a few days off. I'll go down to Ono. I'll have a nice meal. I'll visit with some people. I'll stroll back. It'll delay the work a week or so, but what's the big deal? He could have said that. He didn't because Nehemiah knew that if you're going to accomplish something, you have to stay with it. You you can't do it a little while and then stop and then do it and then stop. The people whose lives are significant are the people who decide what's most important, choose the best over the good, and then they stay with it. They don't quit. Let me give you a list of things that don't have much impact. Now, listen to this whole thing before you disagree. Here are some things that don't really matter very much. Going on a date with your spouse doesn't matter much. I mean, if it's just one date, whether this week Don and I pull away and we go on a date and we spend some time together, one date, one week won't really matter. Won't make us have a great marriage if we do it. We won't have a terrible marriage if we don't. One date doesn't matter. One Saturday with your kids with no TV won't matter. One Saturday won't matter. Won't matter whether you do it or you don't, won't matter. One hour of vigorous exercise won't matter. Just an hour, just do it and you're going to be healthy. No, it won't. Don't do it. You're not going to be sick. One hour won't really matter. A hundred dollars invested in retirement won't matter. I mean, when you get around to retiring, one hundred dollars is not going to matter. But listen, you do those things every week for a year and now all of a sudden they're life-changing events. Does that make sense? The value is not in doing it once. The value is in doing it over and over and over and over. Nehemiah could have said, sure, I can take a day off. But he knew that the value was not measured in what would happen in a day, but the value was measured in what would happen if I string one day with another day with another day and I will not quit. Let me give you a better list. One day of fasting and praying won't matter. It's not going to change your life. You fast tomorrow and, uh, and you spend your time that you would have spent eating, you seek the Lord in prayer, probably won't change your life. One month reading the Bible every day, maybe reading through the book of Romans four times in the month of September, one month of doing that won't, won't change your life. One day volunteering for missions won't change your life. One hour serving through the church won't matter. One time tithing won't matter. 
But if you string those together and you do it over and over and over and you don't take a break, listen, it will change the course of your life. Now, why was Nehemiah's life significant? Because he refused to quit. He refused to pause. He understood the value of consistency. So often, we underestimate the value of a day if that day is connected with many more days. We stay at the task. And then number four, we need to persist at resisting distractions. I, I, I don't have time, but I'll just point out verse four. It says, four times they sent me the same proposal and I continued to say no. See, the decision we make here is not a one-time decision. It's a decision that we have to make over and over and over. The distractions are persistent. And so the faithfulness to what God has called us to do needs to be persistent. Persistent. Well, let me close with this. Uh, this is bad news, but you probably were aware you are going to die. Uh, Lord may come back today. I hope he does. Uh, but apart from that or his soon return, you're going to die. Uh, when you die, uh, a pastor is going to prepare to preach your funeral. Now I've preached a lot of funerals in 25 years. Can I tell you how you prepare? There are three parts to every good funeral message. Part number one, words of comfort. So you, when he's preparing your funeral, that's the first thing he'll do. Part number one, words of comfort. He'll write some stuff down that he plans to say to your family and friends. Part number three, we'll come back to two. Part number three is the gospel. Every uh, good faithful funeral has the gospel. Uh, how it is that a person can become to know Christ as their savior spend eternity with him in heaven. So the gospel, he'll write down some presentation of the gospel. But part number two is the answer to the question, what was the significance of your life? So what do you want him to say? And once you know the answer to that question, that's your Nehemiah 2.17. This is what's important for me. Then you must answer the questions. What do I need to prioritize in my life in order for that to be said? What do I need to resist? What do I need to say no to in order for that to be said? And then maybe most importantly, because this will determine whether this makes any difference in your life or not. What do I need to do about it this week? Not a year from now or in the next season of life, but what should I do this week so that part two of my funeral will represent how I believe God wants me to be significant in my family, in my church, and in the world that God has placed me. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed for a moment, let me remind you that the most significant decision that you make is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. When we have your funeral, whether it happens before or after mine, the most important thing 
The thing that'll be on everybody's mind is whether or not you are a child of God. And the wonderful thing about that is that you can be a child of God. If you'll trust what Jesus has done on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll surrender your life to the Lord, the Bible says that he will forgive you and he will make you a part of his family. Are you a child of God? That, that matters most. But as children of God, what's the significance of your life? I think we all struggle. We binge watch Netflix. People play video games. I, I spent a half a day watching football yesterday. We, we have all kinds of amusements and distractions and, and, and none of that's wrong. As long as we can say that I'm choosing the best over the good, how can your life be significant to your spouse, to your kids, to your church, to the Lord? Father, make my life significant. It's valuable. You say it's valuable. I don't want to squander what's so valuable. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.